listening to Adoption, Fostering and Tea from the UK's LGBT Plus Adoption and Fostering Charity, New Family Social. Find us at newfamilysocial.org.uk. I'm Tor and this week I'm going to be having a cup of tea with John and talking about fostering a 10-year-old permanently and short-term fostering a 16-year-old. That will be followed by questions from our audience. Hi John, nice to meet you. Good afternoon. Are you okay? Yeah, I'm fine, thank you. How are you? Yes, I'm, I'm, I'm good. I'm good. Good stuff, that's excellent. Uh, so I understand that you are a single foster carer. Can you tell me a bit about the children that you've got with you and how long you've been doing that? So yes, I've been um, I've been fostering now for just over three years. Mm-hmm. I have got uh, two young people with me. Uh, I've got um, Billy, who mm-hmm. is just turned sixteen, um, and I've also got Jay, who has just turned ten. So, so three years is it's a relatively short time, really, isn't it? But what brought you to this, and what brought you to it at this stage? I'm just curious, kind of what you've done before and. What made you decide that maybe to move into fostering? <laughs> yeah, so it's quite, it's quite an amusing story because um, when I first started the process, which was probably about three and a half years, there or thereabouts, I still remember this day saying to my friends that I was considering it at that time. And they all said to me, are, are you absolutely insane? They were like, you, <laughs> you do not have any affiliation with children. You don't, you're not ordinarily around children. You you know, what are you thinking? So it's, it's quite amusing that I'm actually now sitting talking on a podcast about um, having children because <laughs> it, was unhe- it was unheard of. Um, but the, the, the place where I worked at the time, um, the agency came in and it was quite, it's quite a big building. So they've got a, a sort of large forecourt area. And they were in, and they had a stall, and I walked past it, and I thought, mm, fostering. I was like, no, that's that's definitely not not for me. And the, the lady approached me and says, you know, would you be interested? And we had a bit of a joke, just exactly as I just described. I went, no, I says, I've got no affiliation with children. Um, I don't see what I could offer. And um, she handed me the leaflet, and I kind of went upstairs into the, the office, and I sat down, and, and the leaflet sat there, and it sat there. And I thought, oh, what's, well, what would be the harm? Let's just have a wee look at it. <laughs> And and that's where it kind of went from, and it just it just kind of snowballed. I suppose is the best way of describing it. After that, so I made the inquiry. The agency got back in touch, and actually, my friends they were foster carers at the time, and even they said to me, "Are you sure this is what you want to do?" <laughs> <laughs> I must have been some leaflet that turned you around from, "Yeah, I'm not that interested in kids," to, "Yeah, sure, I'll be a foster carer." Do you know what it is? Is um, and people have always said to me that that, you, that I'm a bit of a sucker for. <laughs> Not so much a sob story, but when I think somebody's been disadvantaged, uh, I, I tend to lend lend myself to it, and I, I get you know involved, and I don't want to see anybody being disadvantaged. I don't want to see somebody not having something or someone. So I looked at the leaflet, and of course, the front of it was about children who uh, need help and they need support and they need a family, mm. and and that was it. That was the leading from that <laughs> point. So I blame the marketing team that kind of <laughs> drew me into this. <laughs> Oh, well, I think it's great. So when you first inquired, did you expect to be accepted or did you think that perhaps being a guy, being single, would, you know, any aspect of yourself would go against you? Oh, absolutely. All of it. Absolutely <laughs> all of it. Yeah. And I suppose it goes it goes to stereotyping, doesn't it? Because you think I'm a single gay man with no experience with children whatsoever. There's no way in this earth I'm going to be accepted for this. Mm. And I suppose at the beginning, I didn't really understand what the process was. Uh, so I just assumed that 
they would take one look and go, no, no, that's not what we're looking for. Children don't need someone who's on their own, albeit at the time I was partnered. But yeah. I just thought that it's, it's, they're going to look at take one look at it and say, no, it's it's a, it's a no-go. Um, so, yeah, I didn't think for a minute I was going to be accepted. Gosh, and so it must have taken some courage to make those initial steps. When you were going through that initial training, those initial inquiries, were you seeing people who looked like you or did you sort of stand out a little bit? Oh, tremendously. (laughs) Absolutely. And to this day, it's still the same. I think there's probably only been one occasion or one web before um, lockdown, one occasion where I've seen another couple. But prior to that, I stood out like a sore thumb. I really did. Or at least I I felt like I did. I don't think I actually did, but I think I felt that I did, that I was the only person who was sitting there by themselves. Um, Everybody else was coupled. Everybody else was male, female, you know, and, and had lots of experience with children. So, yeah, I absolutely felt that I, I stood out. Yeah, that you'd wandered into the wrong room. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I did, you know, it did actually feel like that at points. I just thought, and I think you do, you you kind of assume that everybody's looking at you. They're not, and, and they probably are because they're thinking the same about themselves. They're, they're probably looking, thinking, oh, I wonder who that is and where they come from. Whereas inside my head, I'm thinking, oh, my God, I'm sitting here by myself. And uh, everybody's looking at me thinking, oh, there's a single guy. Why, why is he here? <laughs> so Yeah, no, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I, once went, I once went to this work thing and um, it was like all like conferences and stuff. And then you went through to the buffet, but I nipped to the loo and then went to the buffet and I'm sort of mingling and chatting. And it gradually dawned on me, this wasn't our buffet. This was a different conference's buffet. And I was like <laughs> mingling with the wrong people. <laughs> so I styled it out for a bit more because you can't just drop your sandwiches and go. So I'm like, oh my God, now I've just got to fake mingle. So I fake mingled a bit and then left and found my own buffet. But I guess you were like that guy. <laughs> t- that is definitely a talent. If you can manage to walk into a different buffet and keep that conversation going, that's a talent. I've you know what, it was a good buffet. It was too good for the voluntary sector. That was the thing. That was what made made me sort of suspicious. It was like, we never get cake like this ever. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> yeah, they've got the best of cheese sandwiches or something like that. <laughs> Um, so so as you went through that initial training was that confidence building or daunting or how did you experience that well do you know actually I think the the bit before the training was probably more daunting because they do quite a lot of checks Uh, no checks is probably not the right word they actually they come and they discover a lot about you that's probably a better way of describing it Mm. so they ask you lots of questions about your how you, um, in fact, it goes back as far as you can remember. You know, what was your childhood like? What was your early experiences like right up to to the, the present day when they're doing that, that discussion? I found that bit more challenging than I did any of the training. And I think it's because you, as an adult, you tend not to think about the past a lot. You know, and you might say, oh, I've done this or I've done that or a bit of reflection on what you've done in the past. But this was going through almost quite methodical, you know, about your your past, your, your kind of early past, very early past, and then the, the present. So I think I found that more difficult than what I did the training. Yeah, I can understand that. Was there anything specific that you'd been worried about them talking to you about, or was it just that sense of being scrutinised in a way that you hadn't been? I think it was probably just not... So there was a lot of questions around family and, you know, what what kind of what was your relationships like, what's your your family dynamics like? And I don't think it was worried as such, but I think it just brought home. You just you you kind of just go through life, don't you? And you and you forget that you don't have a relationship necessarily with 
with your brother or your sister or your half brother mm-hmm. or your half sister, you know, and, and it kind of, sort of conjured up a lot of thoughts and feelings around that more than anything else. It just made you think about what could have been different, you know, what could I have done differently and would I have done things differently now when they start to talk about, well, you know, why, why have you not got a relationship with your brother who stays, you know, 10 miles away and you think, actually, why don't I have yes. a relationship with my brother? You know, and, and that bit I found not necessarily difficult, but I just found it a bit more reflective. I think that's probably a better way of describing it. Yeah, I can understand that, actually. It's uh, it's an odd process to go through your life step by step by step and and try to explain things and try to not quite justify them. I guess sometimes that can be the tone. But yeah, like you say, just reflect on them and revisit that. And it does make you reflective about what you've done and choices that you've made and so on. I do. I get that. Yeah. So um, the children that are with you now, are they the first children that were with you? Yes. Um, so, oh, actually, um, I've had Jay now for the full time. I think I said that, didn't I? So he's, he's been with me for the three years. Mm. Um, Billy arrived a year ago, next month, in fact, actually. And then prior to that, there was another teenager who was with me for a year as well. So I've had three children in, in, in the time that I've been doing fostering. Okay, and and you said to me that placement with Jay is a permanent placement. Can you say a bit more about that? Yeah, so it's it's um I don't know how to quite describe, but there's I suppose without going into great detail, there's different stages within the fostering process. It's not even the fostering process actually. It's probably more around the the legislation. In fact, so uh, Jay is on what's called a permanence order. So I suppose it's this kind of latter, uh, the the end part of the entire process whereby. Jay won't go back to his family. Mm-hmm. The order has been done through uh, court, uh, and that means that he'll be. This will be his forever home, effectively. So he'll be with me until. Well, he'll be with me legally until twenty three, according to Jay. Um, he's not moving out, um, <laughs> which which will probably pose its own problems when we get to about nineteen. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but he's he's quite determined at the age of ten that he's going nowhere because he's he's heard about how much it costs yeah. um, to then get a house and to do all the things that he uh, loves at the moment. So yeah, he'll probably be with me to my retirement. But um, <laughs> uh, so he's on a permanence order, uh, which will mean he won't go back to to his birth family. Whereas Billy is only with us. He's he's actually on a, a voluntary agreement with the local authority uh, at the moment, so he's not in, a, in any kind of compulsory orders or anything. So he will go back potentially back to um, where he was uh, by June this year. Okay, so I've got a million questions. So uh, oh, good, good. good. <laughs> yeah. uh, so, thank you, Jay. First, did you know that was intended to be permanent at the time that you were matched with him? Oh, that's a good question. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> and 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 that's got me thinking now because I'm trying to think back three years. Um, I think there there was there was discussion around we, we we would like for this to be his permanent home, but I don't think that was the full premise at the beginning. I think it was a case of uh, we see this being a good match. Let's just see how it develops. I think the local authority were keen to get him placed somewhere so because he, he's had a tremendous amount of moves. It's it's just terrible. So I think they were keen for it, but that really wasn't the the first premise. But um, for me, it was probably, I probably just stole one of your questions, actually. But for me, it was about wanting to give him his forever home. You know, I wanted him to, I think it's important for a child to to feel that that is going to be where they're going to be for the rest of their, their days. You know, if it's right for them and it's right for the family, then that's how it should be. 
so yeah, I wanted it, I wanted it to be his forever home. I wanted it to work out um, for him. That's lovely. And um, one of the questions that people sometimes ask um, who don't really know about adoption or fostering is, well, why might a child be permanently fostered and not adopted? So I'm not asking for his specific reasons because that'll be personal to him. But can you talk a little bit about why that decision might be made more broadly? Yeah, yeah. And this this is a bit of a a bit of a bony contention, I think, for a lot of people because there's a bit of an unwritten an unwritten procedure, if you like, that children of certain ages won't eventually go on to be adopted. Um, so I suppose it depends on when when they arrive in the care system a bit about their experiences and whether the and a big part of it is whether the the, the birth family um, when they go to that. Now this may be different for Scotland and England, but when they go to the point of arriving in care, um, there's certain legal orders that the family can then agree to. Mm. Um, and if they agree for the child to go into a permanence order with authority to adopt, then there's a potential that child will go straight into an adoption process if, if there's a family available. Regrettably, a lot of the families, or not a lot, but an experience, some families might say, well, I'm happy for my child to be going to the fostering system, but I don't want them to be adopted. And it depends then if the local authority are going to, to push for adoption. So if it's for example, a four-year-old child who's been into the care system and the family don't want them to be adopted, then it becomes a bit more of a challenge for the local authority to to do so. Uh, not impossible, but it, you know it's a bit more difficult because you really need the family to agree or go through a court process to make it happen. Yeah, I, I can I can understand that, and I think there are some differences between the systems. But um, that thing of a notion that a child is unadoptable due to age and that cut-off point can actually be really low you know that it's all this child is approaching x age and I don't want to say a specific age because it varies but you know they might Mm. say like oh you know the child's approaching six years old and therefore we need to start looking to other options or whatever and but I know that also some people say that sometimes permanent fostering can be better for a specific child because the level of involvement that the local authority retains is immense and Therefore, support is more easily accessed, training is more easily accessed, respite might be more easily accessed and so on. Is that correct in your experience? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And I I think it's got to be, for me, it's always got to be about the child and and what it is they need. Because I know a lot of people might go into this kind of process thinking, well, it's important that I, I want to adopt because of X, Y and Z, um, or I want to foster because X, Y and Z, but I'm always very strong in that the and you, you you articulated it brilliantly that it's got to be about what the child wants and needs and the local authority whilst in the fostering or long-term fostering or even short-term fostering actually they will be legally bound to give that support so whether it is around therapeutic work or whether it's around uh, working with the schools or you know whatever it may be um, the local authority are bound by that. So um, I suppose that in, in some ways, in, in my opinion anyway, that a fostering, um, a child in foster care would get a tremendous amount more support than they would do if it was an adoption. And I, and I think for a, but it's a difficult one because then the child might want to feel, well, and, and they definitely will. And I think um, Jay's getting to that point now of saying, well, you know, you're my family. So... Mm. You know, why can I not get your surname? You know, and, and the questions do come up, you know, and I can see why there's maybe an age cut off because it gets to a point where they start asking questions around, well, I've been with you for a long time now, so what, am I part of your family? Or, yes. you know, how, how does it work? So it's a really fine line between what the child 
wants and needs at the early stages of their life. And then actually, when they get to a point, does the child want to be adopted? You know, and I'd say from my experiences, absolutely. You know, they, they start to build more bonds, more attachments to you and, and your family, if that's applicable. And they want to start feeling like they are officially part of your family. And also, it breaks down a lot of that, you know, sort of status quo in society as well, because people will naturally assume that that child is your child and they've got your surname. Yes. Um, and, it, and, you know, and I think the greatest thing ever is for a child, for me, I'd love, I would absolutely love to have Jay as part of my family, you know, and, and being able to, for him to be able to go into somewhere and say, that's my dad and mm. this is my surname, you know, and it's the same surname because um, that can create a bit of stigma, uh, you know, when they're feeling that they're not part of that family. So there's just so many dynamics, but I would say that definitely foster care gives a tremendous amount of support that's absolutely needed in the early part of their their journey. Clearly. And I think it must be interesting for you as the foster carer, because I guess in short term foster care, that that line that you are not the child's parent is fairly rigidly reinforced since it's you're not encouraged to call yourself dad or another parenting name. And you're not you don't have the legal rights and responsibilities of a parent and you're not encouraged to refer to yourself as that. But I wonder how that's morphed for you, because this is now a permanent arrangement into adulthood or to adulthood. and. I just wonder, clearly, the way that you talk sounds parental, and I wonder if that line blurred for you suddenly, gradually, or whether you feel there is still that line in place that you aren't his parent in some emotional sense. Is that in place for you, or is that gone? <laughs> yeah, so I, I think I'm the vein of the social, uh, the um, local authority's life, to be honest, <laughs> because I think I've probably danced over that line about 100 times, <laughs> maybe a 1,000 times, in fact, because... Yeah, yeah. So it's a really tough one because you do have you have a rule book that could probably hold up the foundations of the house. I could probably give it to the builders, in fact, <laughs> and get them to use that for some of the work that's getting done because it's just tremendous the amount of things that you can and can't do and the things that you shouldn't say and shouldn't do. And I think I'd say to anybody is that you you do need to follow the rules. It's important that you do because they've been built over years and years of experience, but. The reason I kind of dance over the line quite a lot is because uh, for me, it's about building that relationship for Jay. Not for me, by any stretch of the imagination. It's about giving him a sense of life, about a sense of feeling and belonging and an attachment and everything else. So, yeah, unfortunately, I, I do go over the line quite often. And But I take it from Jay. I, you know, I take his steer and what feels right and what feels comfortable. So things like, you know, getting a haircut done, or, you know, if you were to follow the rule book, it would say you have to phone the local authority and ask them to get a haircut, whereas I just go ahead and do it and then kind of update yeah. update the local authority afterwards. <laughs> so probably not the right thing to do, but, you know, the, I want to give them a sense of, inverted commas, normal, whatever normal looks like, I want them to feel that. I don't want them to feel that, you know, that people are aware, because they are, you know, as they get older, they're very acutely aware that they're in foster care. Yes. Um, and as you rightly say, it comes with labels, it comes with a bit of stigma probably still now, now even in this day and age. But I don't want Jay, um, or Billy for that matter, I don't want either two of them to feel that way. And that's sometimes why I do 
dance around the line. <laughs> it's probably <laughs> a, it's the best way to describe it. I do a jig up and down the line. <laughs> I, would, I would love to see that. <laughs> let's, let's chat a little bit about Billy then. So Billy's a lot older. You said Billy's just turned 16. Yes. And that Billy's mm-hmm. placement is a shorter term placement. So can you say a bit about that? Yeah, so yeah, so Billy has been in the care system for some time, but there was a kin care relationship for, for a short time as well. Um, unfortunately, that broke down and there's been a few uh, foster carers involved as well. But Billy is is an incredible lad. Um, and it, I think the support that he's been needing for, for such a long time just hasn't been there. And I think it is it's a different kind of, um, completely different from Jay, actually, his kind of upbringing and where he's been. Um, and I think that's probably where... I have to, and I suppose I should say that actually, that if you end up with, you know, any of the listeners end up with two children, you've got to be so adaptable because they are completely different, you know, even the age or the where they are in their, in their care journey or, you know, loads of different dynamics. Mm-hmm. Um, Billy's is very, very different and uh, didn't get the level of support that he should have done from a very early age. So, but a great guy, really, really nice. Was fifteen when he arrived and just turned sixteen recently, and the, the change in him has been quite incredible. You know, over that time, we are a very kind of, I was going to say rigid, but that's not the right word to use. It's probably we we like our routines. Mm-hmm. We, you know, we do everything by routine. You know, dinner times at the right time and the same time. I should say, we do pretty much the same activities the weekend. We enjoy walking. We enjoy. We've got a dog. Um, for much to my madness of um, deciding to get a beagle. Don't ever get a beagle. Incident. Oh, I've heard they're a nightmare. <laughs> oh, my word. Oh, my word. But um, I'll come on to that. But, um, yeah, so Billy has got uh, a great wee personality but comes with different kinds of challenges, and that's that's sometimes the, the nice part of doing fostering. In fact, sometimes the nice part of being single as well because you don't have to run, you don't feel the need to run everything by someone else. You know, you just kind of make the right decision and, and go with it. So, um, but Billy's got a great wee personality that that is starting to nurture, you know, starting to see that coming out, uh, which is great because I don't think he was given the opportunity to do that previously. Yeah, it, I mean, it, I can imagine that that sort of, that structure it can be quite reassuring for a child that's had a lot of change. Is that is that why you've gone to that, or is that just your personality? Um, a bit of both, actually. Yeah, I'd, I'd say, I suppose it goes back to your earlier question around training, and they'll tell you in training that kids need boundaries, and they absolutely do. Uh, they need routines, and I agree. Yeah, and I think a lot of people might not agree, but I agree that they do need routines. And I think they thrive in routines as well. And I think that's what Billy was missing was having someone there that could be there to give them advice, be there to be. In fact, in, in Billy's own words, he wanted someone to be the father figure, you know, somebody to give them that help, support, that guidance, that protection, you know, all these things that um, he hasn't had before. So it's a bit of my personality. I, I like to be very organized. I like to do lots of planning, but I think it definitely benefits both boys um, and Billy in particular, who hasn't had that same level of um, guidance and routines and boundaries. Don't get me wrong, it wasn't easy to begin with, you know, <laughs> when you've got someone who's not used to that and and doesn't appreciate it to begin with because it's, it's completely new. But you start to see them coming into their own uh, when they do have, you know, they know they're going to get a meal at five o'clock, for example, or they, they know that 
you have a movie night on a Thursday night or, you know, these things I can start to see the Billy looks forward to and, and appreciates as well. Yeah, I can I can imagine that that's the case. Um, given that Billy's going to be moving on in June, and again, without asking personal details about his situation, but how does that feel for you? And how does that sort of impact interactions and so on? Do you know, I think it's always about being open and honest as far as you possibly can. And Billy and I have had conversations right at the very beginning, in fact, about you know what are the expectations? What 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 do you want? So you take into account probably what Billy wants, but also being honest about what is likely to happen. So Billy didn't want to be here, of course he didn't. You know, and he wanted to be back where his family lived, um, which is a good distance away from where he is at the moment. So it's about being honest and just you know setting that expectation. And I think that's what makes it easier when it comes to if it comes to the point where you know Billy moves on, either goes back to. Um, family or whether he, he goes off to somewhere somewhere new uh, new pastures but I think it's about having that honest conversation because as it gets closer to that it can be quite you know y- your life changes you know absolutely changes you know when you bring a child into your home your routines change y- your environment in the house the dynamics you know everything changes so it's about everybody being on that same journey you know and, and being honest about what that looks like so we know that it might be in June, um, but Billy knows it might not be June. You know, it depends on what happens with the birth family and whether that's right for, for him. But I would say to, to anybody is it's got to be be honest as far as you can. You know, don't feel, don't hide things, especially at the age of 16. You know, there's, they're fairly astute. So it's about being honest and, and bringing them along on the journey with you um, rather than, and, and, and then it affects you, it affects you and the, and the family. Because even Jay, you know, I'd say to Jay that, you know, that um, Billy's going to be leaving in six months. How do you feel about that? You know, and it's setting that expectation so that it doesn't feel sudden um, and relationships just kind of stop. You know, I think it's important that everybody knows what what it looks like and what's going to happen. Yeah, and I can imagine that that's quite difficult, but I can understand why being honest is the right thing. You know, it's what we're told to do, but it is sometimes quite hard to find those words. Yeah. So... Two children, a beagle, a building project. Um, do you do you still work outside the home as well, or did that end when you began fostering? No, no, that would be the sensible thing to do, but of course not. No, um, in fact, I think I've actually taken on more. So when I, when Jay arrived, I worked full time, um, and I did so for I think about. So I got made redundant from my last job about a year ago. So for two years, actually, I worked full-time and it was just uh, Jay and myself for the most part. As I said earlier, I was partnered at the beginning, but that then stopped. So I worked full-time and then when the first teenager arrived, I then kind of realised I couldn't do it all, you know, and you've, you've got to you've got to evaluate all the time, you know, is it working for you? Is it working for the boys? Is it, you know, all the things together didn't have a beagle at that point i should mention <laughs> um, so i'll come on to i'll come on to that because that's probably a full-time job in itself but <laughs> um, so i was working full-time i got then got made redundant and i then decided i was going to work part-time but in my infancy i decided that i'll do part-time and I also took on a college course as well Oh my! so <laughs> i went from one extreme to the next and uh, a complete and utter change around i used to be a project manager and then 
when I got made redundant, I decided to do to reevaluate what I wanted to do with my career and my life, in fact, actually. So I went, and this goes back to your earlier question, funnily enough, I went full circle. So I went from being a project manager three years ago, no children, no beagle, no building work. <laughs> and then I decided that, actually, let's go and work in social care. Um, so I've started studying my degree in social care. Okay. And I then decided, well, that's probably not enough, so let's go and work with children as well. So I got a job in the voluntary sector working with children. Okay. So you can see where this is going. It's just went from one complete extreme yeah. to another. Wow. Um, so at the start of lockdown, funnily enough, that's when I, I started doing my part-time work. It was intergenerational work, which was f- fantastic. I loved it. And it was working with younger people and older people and just bringing them together um, in a kind of social setting, uh, which obviously reduces the older person's isolation, but gives the younger person skills and being able to to work with others. So it was an amazing job. Really, really loved it. Uh, and I think that was the difference it made because I was working part-time, um, obviously the two boys uh, and doing college as well. And it just felt like everything was was happening because I wanted it to happen and it was the right thing to do for, for all of us. So it's went, f- and then of course, then we decided, well, that's not enough. Let's get a dog. <laughs> and of all the types of dog. <laughs> uh, if anybody ever Googles Beagle, it should, somebody should pay Google to actually just come up. Don't do it. <laughs> just, just don't do it. <laughs> because you could take in six kids and it's still going to be as bad as a Beagle. I mean, <laughs> These, they are like toddlers times 10. Um, it's like having a nursery, in fact, in the back garden with us. You just cannot keep up with this dog. He is just, he's in everything, absolutely into everything. You've got to have eyes and a, a head that can spin 360 degrees. <laughs> <laughs> he's just a nightmare. I can't begin to imagine. <laughs> he's, 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 but the, the, the offshot of it is he's, he's an amazing He's such a lovely wee dog who just wants, for the most part, lots of love and cuddles and and claps. But when he he's a year old, I, I never mentioned that. So to add, he was eight months when nine months when we got him, and he was a puppy and a beagle on top of that. So that Aww. gives you an idea. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, they lead with their nose, and I always say to get a child to to do what you ask. It's normally about five or six times before they actually do it. You can double that for a beagle. Double <laughs> it probably. <laughs> oh God. I can't I can't begin to imagine. So given all that's going on, how how do you get downtime or a personal life or a night out or a lunch? You know, what do you do to glue your bits back on when you're sort of a bit tired, you know, to glue your armor back on or whatever it is? How do you regenerate yourself, I guess? You just don't. Okay. <laughs> you just get on with it now. Uh, I think this is where you, and in fact, it's part of the process when before you even get to the training part for fostering, they put a lot of onus on what does your support circle look like. Yeah. Um, and I would say that's that's fundamental for anybody, whether you're doing fostering, whether you're doing adoption, you know, whatever it is, you've got to have a support um, network around you. And that, whether that's family or friends or neighbours or whoever it is. And I think that was a big contributor to to actually um, undertaking fostering is knowing that if I desperately need, or not even desperately needed, in fact, if I just needed a little bit of time, if I wanted to get away for the weekend, if I wanted to go on a night out or go for a meal with friends, that there's someone there. And I'm very fortunate. I've got 
great friends. I've got uh, fantastic neighbours who are there just at the drop of a hat. And I've also got f- close friends who are also foster carers as well. So they understand that, you know, and they, they're there to help and support and and be there to talk to, you know, when things do get tough because it's, it's not always rosy, you know, it's not always great. So you do need that person on the other end of the phone or somebody who you can just go around and, you know, invent to. And it's also great if they're doing fostering because their kids will understand as well. So when you bring your kids around, then, you know, everybody's of the same understanding and, and know how to help and support and and even just that dynamics things I was talking about earlier. So, um, yeah, you've got to have a, a good network around you. Otherwise, it'd just be impossible to do what you do. Uh, and also, I would say, if you've got, um, in my case, a mother who used to always say to me, I'll never have any grandchildren. You know that, don't you? <laughs> and then the minute when you turn around and say to her, now you do, now you've got a grandchild. It's amazing how they change their mind. It's amazing how she goes, oh, no, no, I'm too old now. And I was like, well, that's funny because <laughs> two years ago you were too old. <laughs> so just make sure you've got a grandparent who is willing uh, and able to look after them as well. So. <laughs> yeah, that is a top tip. <laughs> that's a top tip. <laughs> Has your support network changed over time since you did this or was that in place? Because for me and Jackie, we found that, the friends that we went into parenthood with, so my youngest is adopted, but my two older children are birth children, but the friends that we went into parenthood with changed entirely and each child brought along circumstances in which we made new friends and new connections. And But now probably, you know, if I look at our wedding pictures, which were just after our first child was born, the people on it, I'm hardly in touch with any of them. It was a real churn of people around that time. Mm. And I don't know, has yours stayed the same or have you gathered mm. more or changed some over? No, you're, you're absolutely right. Do you know, the, the thing I didn't quite expect, I suppose my my core friends, if that's even the right term to use, they're still there. So, you know, friends that I've had for 10, 15, 20 years, they're still there, but we don't see, or I don't see them nearly as much as I did prior mm. to the to um, Jay arriving. But what I didn't expect, I suppose, and it's funny you now ask that, is I didn't realise how much your friends list would grow because inevitably when the child goes to school, they start to make friends and then, you know, can we go down to such and such's house and then you become friends with them. And I think it's definitely grown to the point where, I mean, Jay knows every single kid in, in the 10-mile radius. You know, <laughs> he can walk down the street and, and you start to feel quite inadequate because he knows more people than you do. You know, and you've, you've lived in the area for 10 years and he knows <laughs> absolutely everybody. So it's, it's actually quite, it's a really nice feeling, in fact, because you know that um, the people who you've met through children, there's a bit of a mutual friendship there, you know, and, and albeit it's based on the fact that there's, you know, they, they want their boys or their girls or whoever it may be to, to play together. But yeah, absolutely. To answer the question, I, I, I think my friends, most of my friends have still remained the same. A lot have moved on. Um, maybe then when they've realised just how much work's involved for you by doing fostering, maybe that just didn't suit you know what their their part in lifestyle or the fact that they could just go out or go on holiday whenever they wanted. So that's changed, but it's definitely grown for the for the better as well. And I think um, the the biggest surprise I had was we went on holiday. And uh, Jay had never been, I think he'd been on holiday once in previous um, fostering relationships. But uh, I decided to book it and went to Magaluf. Yeah. So so everybody said to me, are you crazy? Like, 
it's Magaluf. And I said, well, it's the start of the season, so nothing's happening. <laughs> and he says, but you're still booking Magaluf. And I says, yeah, fine. So I, I, we went anyway. And then, you know, that moment when you get on the plane and you think, oh, my word, you know, <laughs> what, what have I done? You know, I'm on the plane with a then eight-year-old and I'm going to Magaluf. You know, it just, it just didn't seem to come together, did it? <laughs> but the great thing is, and this is the bit I didn't expect, is when I got there, I fully expected a week of headphones in, sitting in the sun, and uh, Jay would be off playing with, you know, kids in, in the, the hotel, um, kids club or whatever it may be. Yeah. I think I probably met more people on that holiday than I think I have in any other holiday ever. Oh, really? And it was lovely because I didn't, I hadn't thought for a moment that as Jay was meeting people, that then you would start talking to their parents um, or their carers or their adults. And then, of course, they were talking already to someone else and, you know, someone else and someone else. So I think by the end of day four, I think we were sitting in groups of 15, 20 people. Wow, that's and that lovely. Was, and it was just incredible. You know, I just didn't expect that. I didn't expect that at all. I mean, I didn't expect the, the hangovers at the back of it either, you know, when you've got eight people. That was a bit of a challenge, but um, the amount of people that... I then met, and uh, lovely, it was lovely recently that one of the couples that we did meet came up to, they stayed um, down south, and they came up to visit, and we met up with them, and it was just so nice, you know, and we still had that that kind of, that common ground, you know, with kids, and, but I never expected, I didn't know any of this was going to happen, and never expected that, certainly, when I started yeah, there is a solidarity to parenthood, isn't there? There's something, yeah. you know, mm-hmm. when it goes well, that it's kind of we're in this together and let's help each other through it sort of thing. Absolutely. I do yeah. hope you got yourself an ill-advised tattoo while you are in Magaluf. No, well, luckily enough, not this occasion, but <laughs> I did once in Gran Canaria. Let's <laughs> <laughs> tell me about that after. <laughs> yeah, so I've, I, might, I might have just learned from that. <laughs> well done. So... Given the journey that you've been on and um, how varied it's been, how you're doing simultaneously two different types of fostering, how you came to it as somebody who really wasn't that keen on kids to start with, or at least that engaged with kids. um, I just wonder what advice you might have to people who are thinking about foster care, because it's hard to recruit foster carers. There are big gaps in the numbers of foster carers needed versus the numbers available. And I just wonder what your advice would be to people thinking about it. Yeah, I think my first bit of advice is that you can't go into it, I suppose you can't go into it thinking that it's going to be a bed of roses. It's it's not, you know, and then but equally I don't want people to think that it is going to be the toughest thing in the world. It might well be, you know, at the beginning you are bringing a child into your home, that's you know, that's gonna rock if you've already got a family and you've got, you know, your kind of the things that you like to do. It's that's gonna change. All of that's gonna change. So that you've got to go into it with the right expectations of what you want from it. Um, and I think if, you, if you've got a good heart and you genuinely want to see a child or children, you know, depending on what it may be, go on to better things, you know, and have a, a home that they can feel safe and nurtured and everything. If you're doing it for all the right reasons, then it is the most rewarding thing I've ever done in my life. And, I, you know, even... If I was to do it, I don't think it's probably a good contrast, but if you want to go in and do charity work, you know, or you want to go and do something that's giving back to the community, it doesn't even remotely go near the, the what you get from, from doing fostering. I don't think I ever went into it for me. I, you know, I don't think at any point I thought, what am I going to get out of this? And I think if that's what people 
feel is going to happen. Um, it might well do, you know, it might, it might be that that's what happens for them, but I never went in with it with that thought or feeling about it. I want to go in and make a difference. And I think my advice to anybody is if you really want to make a difference, you've got room in your home and you're willing to open it up to help a child, then it is the best thing I've ever done. And I suppose a good way of, of describing it is I kind of talked about where I was three years ago, um, not having any children, didn't even think for a moment that I could look after a child. Um, I probably three years ago, I couldn't look after myself, let alone a child. <laughs> but um, to be where I am now, I would be absolutely devastated if Jay was to go, which is he's not. But if he was to go, it would probably destroy me because I adore every bit of him. I'd like to think it's reciprocated as well. Um, and that's what you get out of fostering. You know, that's what you... And actually, I'll probably just contradict myself. In fact, if that's what you want out of it, then that's what you'll end up getting out of it. Um, not every circumstance, you know, it doesn't always work out that way. But in my my situation, that's exactly what's happened. And I couldn't imagine life now without them. Uh, it's just amazing. It really is amazing. And in actual fact, um, it does change your world, but it changes it for the better. And that's that's I'm pretty certain that's a cliche somewhere out there. But <laughs> the, the way that I've seen um, Jay come on, I've seen the change in him uh, for the better, you know. And the world that he may have ended up in would have been a very different place, and and maybe not being where he is now. So I like to sit and think, not necessarily that I've done that, but I've been there for him and given him that opportunity. And the, you couldn't put a price on that, you know. And if it's something. If it's someone who's sitting there thinking, or even someone that's sitting listening to, to this podcast wondering, is that really for me? Um, then you've got absolutely nothing to lose by inquiring about it, but you've got so much to gain. And if I was to do it all over again, I wouldn't change a thing. Absolutely nothing. Might change a few social workers because they've been interesting to deal with, but um, <laughs> I wouldn't change anything else. It's the most rewarding thing I've ever done. And... I'll continue to do. And uh, and Jay actually said, you know, when, when Billy goes, uh, can we get a, a boy this time who's about nine-year-old and can we do this and we, can we do that? And so he he's actually picking the next child that comes. I, I did say it's not like a DFS sofa. You <laughs> uh, can't pick the eye colours of the hair, but, you know. But this is a boy who came and, and had, had a, his whole world upside down. And now he's sitting talking about another child who he wants to help. So... I mean, if that doesn't make someone want to do fostering, I don't know what would, to be honest. That's such fantastic advice. Thank you so much for your time. You're very welcome. Joining me now from New Family Social is James, who's brought along some questions from members. Hi, James. How are you? I'm very well. How are you doing? I'm absolutely fine. I understand that you've been analysing survey results, which I know is your absolute favourite thing. Yes, there's nothing that I don't enjoy more than a bit of a filter on many an Excel field. <laughs> well, I hope the results are looking interesting. It certainly sounded that way. So I know that you've brought along some questions from members. What have you got for us, James? Well, the first question that we've got for this particular episode is about how you decide the kinds of children you think you're going to be most appropriate to foster and what the pros and cons are of fostering children who might be that little bit older. Oh, that's really interesting. I mean, I've not been a foster carer, but I do remember that questionnaire from when we were adopting, when you're asked, would you consider a child with this need, that need, and so on. Do you remember that yourself from your own process? 
Yes, it's an interesting way of approaching it in terms of not just what you think you're able to offer when it comes to supporting the child, but also where the child at is in in terms of their own stage of life. So, for instance, if uh, if you're more naturally oriented towards young children, that's great. However, younger children are less able to communicate how they feel or to share constructed sentences around their emotions, whereas actually older children are better able to express their feelings and their emotional responses to situations, which for some people is a, is a lot easier to work with and be able to, to offer support to. Yeah, and as a very rough rule of thumb as well, of course, the older the child, the more likely its needs are to be known. So the more time that's passed, if that child is six, seven, eight, nine, ten, whatever, the more likely it is that that child's had some support go in or that professionals are aware of what that child's needs are. The child might have diagnoses in place or, you know, other support that they are known to respond to or not. Whereas for very young children, it can sometimes be a case of those needs being completely unknown or suspected but not diagnosed, which might mean that there is not yet support in place. So while often people say, oh, younger is easier, I think that's actually quite misleading. I think there's complexity to it that that doesn't sum up. Yes, I think that's a very good way of looking at it. And also a lot of people, when they think about um, children who are younger, will be overlaying their experience of young birth children to the situation. And actually, when you're talking about children who are looked after, because they are that bit younger and they may have been exposed to either drugs or alcohol when they were either extremely young or in the womb, you can't know what the impact of that's going to look like until the child starts growing up. And that's the point at which the diagnoses can start to to take place. But brain development and behaviour development will occur quite quickly. And with really young children, it can be quite a learning curve to, to accommodate that. Whereas with, with older children, as you say, the, there's a greater likelihood that the diagnoses and the assessments will have, will have taken place and the appropriate kind of support that you'll need to, to foster them will be there for, for you to access. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, we know that as a community, we are more likely to consider older children as a population. So again, this is really relevant specifically for LGBTQ plus people, um, because we are likely to be fostering and adopting older children in greater numbers. Absolutely. And it's because LGBTQ plus people go into both fostering and adoption with a very open mind in terms of the the aspects and the traits of the children they'll consider to to either foster or to adopt it is actually vital that you spend time considering what you're best able to to meet in terms of need and for for some of us actually older children when it comes to fostering will be more appropriate and you will find it easier than possibly a very young child Yeah, and of course, we know that there are lots and lots of teenagers in the care system who are really desperate for a foster placement that's really appropriate for them. So I guess for anybody out there who is considering fostering older children or teenage children, 
we've got lots of people who've done it really successfully. And both this episode of the podcast demonstrates that. But there are previous episodes too of people talking about fostering older children and what a massive difference it's made to those children's lives. Absolutely. And all it takes is one really successful foster placement to have a lasting impact that will last the life of the child. So when you're sitting down and thinking through the kinds of children you can properly support, older children should absolutely be in your mindset, particularly if you're thinking about fostering, because that child will be able to talk things through with you. And if you're LGBTQ+, remember you've got that mindset of having navigated your way through your own identity. And you can help a child who's in, in foster care really do that quite successfully, particularly when that child is older and they, they, they understand the concepts that relate to identity that bit better. Thanks, James. And so you've brought another question with you as well. Yes, um, we had an email through on one of our agency sessions, which is really trying to sound out how do you demonstrate your support network if you are putting yourself forward for fostering and you're specifically looking at fostering older children? Yes, yeah, so support network comes up and it can be all different types of support. So it could be friends, it could be family, it could be um, sort of formal support systems like your child's uh, nursery or school or after school club. It could be professional support and so on. So it's a really wide network of things. Um, so you need to have a look around what you've got already. But you can actually build up support with a view to becoming a foster carer or indeed with a view to becoming an adopter. It doesn't all have to be there from the moment you apply, but it could do with being there once the child's placed. Having said that, I don't know what your experience um, was, James, but my own was that our support network grew as our children grew because you're thrown in system into situations with other parents and carers as well. Yes, it, it changes as time goes by. And also, what do you think is your support network and what your support network ends up actually being will look quite different. I would advise anybody who is sitting down trying to map out their, their support network to forget that it's them in the centre of it and actually try and look objectively at what those connections might be. But also where if you were in a time of crisis, where you would reach out to and who those people would be in your in your network and sometimes the people who you depend on most at the time that you're going through the process won't be the people that can help you when you most need support when you're fostering or adopt or act being an adoptive parent do you know what i found james was that it was easy to think of people that would help in a crisis because in a crisis strangers will often help you, you know lots of people will help if something appalling's just happened. But the thing that was sometimes harder was people that you could just go to to offload or just go when you're feeling so flat that it's kind of hard to string a sentence together or whatever it is. And it for me, it wasn't that real kind of crisis emergency sort of support. It was just a level or two down from that where it's like, who are the people that I can say I just messed this up with? Who are the people that I can be really honest about how I'm feeling with? And I think for me thinking of all those different levels that isn't always you know my child's just fallen down the stairs and has broken the leg and is being rushed to the hospital because actually loads of people will help in that circumstance but they aren't necessarily people that you'd go to for this is just hard I'm just really tired I'm just at a loss what to do 
And I mean, you know that I joined New Family Social way before I worked here. And I know that you did as well. Do you want to say how you built your support network through New Family Social? Well, yes, it was interesting because we were we went through the process and had friends who had already adopted. But we've also managed to reach out and build um, firm friendships with people who are members and who you can contact when times get that little bit not it's not crisis but when you are feeling run down when you just need to vent and be listened to and not what you don't particularly want is someone giving you all the answers what you want is someone to listen to you and to understand exactly where you're coming from because when you're parenting or if you're if you're caring for a child who has a range of needs and they are quite demanding and they are demanding day in day out and your time for recovery is fairly limited you don't actually need somebody to give you a solution it's not about coming in and doing for it's about listening to and understanding that a lot of the usual solutions just won't work and sometimes it is just that being heard is the one thing that you actually need Yeah, I agree with that. And one of the things that I find quite useful, as well as friends who are foster carers or adopters, of whom I made almost all of them through New Family Social, but um, I've got one or two friends who aren't the least bit interested in my kids. They really aren't bothered. They would never think to ask about them. And actually, sometimes I go and hang out with those friends to not be this for a while, to not be caring for children for a while, because they're the friends who aren't bothered. They'll give me a drink, they'll tell me a load of gossip, they'll, you know, and we'll just laugh and laugh and laugh. And I think that stepping away from it too sometimes is just so valuable. Yes, I think that there is that time when you have a conversation with a friend and the first question is about your child or your children. And you think, that's the one thing I don't want to talk about. I want to be known as something other than a parent at this particular time. I just need to talk about things that interested me before I went through the process, before I started parenting. I need that part of my identity back and to engage with it with someone who knows me and knows what my interests are. And it's it may only be once every few months, but it's quite important to retain that element of your identity and that you don't become completely subsumed by being an adoptive parent or a foster carer. Because if you feel that you're losing yourself within that and it's not a comfortable feeling, then you've got to be able to reach back to yourself and and kind of refresh the connections that you had with people outside of going through the process. Yeah, I agree with that. I think the other kind of support that I found really valuable, though, was people who really like my child. Because sometimes if your child is um, having some difficulties and that's starting to feel relentless, somebody who kind of says oh, isn't he clever, or isn't he doing well, or what a sweetie, or isn't he funny, or look how he's done that thing, or isn't he caring, or something just lovely. That's really refreshing as well, because you can end up a little bit, you know, when you're filling in forms or whatever it is and arguing for support or something. Again, you can become very focused on these are all the challenges that my child faces. And sometimes that thing of somebody who just really likes your child and has their back too. And it can be like, oh, that's so refreshing to hear that lovely thing. And you feel that little glow of pride. And and I, I really love that as well. I found that very important. Yes, it's certainly deeply helpful to have people that can recognise that your child is doing well. And that sometimes that will 
help you turn around in your head if you've if you've had a particularly tough couple of days and everything seems a bit negative that can completely turn things around um and certainly if you are if your child is going through difficult times and you're trying to access support for them you tend to forget about the nicer stuff because you're so focused on getting issues resolved and tackling things that have cropped up that that are causing your child distress and actually it can be hard to pull away from that and see the bigger picture and see the successes and see the the happiness and the joy if you're so completely focused about getting something at school resolved or something to do with the support that you need but you're not quite accessing and it's it really does help to have people that can remind you that actually things are going well that your child should be celebrated and that actually you're doing a perfectly good job it's and very few people will tell you that you're doing well <laughs> i'll tell you James, you're doing a very very good job <laughs> but only if you tell me it back oh you're doing a fantastic <laughs> oh, job thanks <laughs> feel, free, feel free to send in your praise <laughs> <laughs> Um, that's brilliant James thank you ever so much for joining me that's been fantastic thank you thank you I'd like to thank my guest today John and the listeners who sent in their questions via the contact form on our website if you enjoyed this podcast please leave us a five-star review and share it with your friends follow us on twitter at lgbt adopt foster and on facebook search new family social all one word visit our website at newfamilysocial.org.uk. Adoption, Fostering and Tea is produced by New Family Social. The presenter was me, Tor Doherty, with music from Matt Doherty. The producer was John Jenkins. We'll be back next time with more guests and more tea.